this is something the director of both my shows, The No Bang Theory and my upcoming show, Santa Claus Autistic, says all the time, is that you can only roll a shit in so much glitter. <laughs> Welcome to Psychocinematic, a podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular films and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie Fornasia. If you love our podcast and want to give us some support, make sure you're following Psychocinematic Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And check out our website, psychocinematicpodcast.com, for access to special bonus content, episodes, early access, stickers, and contribute to our regular fundraisers, join our Patreon. Starting from $3.50 a month, you can be the coolest Psychocinematic listener there is. I'd just like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're on today. I'm from uh, Wurundjeri country uh, of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay respects to um, elders past, present and emerging and recognise that I'm currently sitting on stolen land and that this is, always will be and always was Aboriginal land. I'm very excited to welcome my guest today which is Oliver Hetherington Page. Did I get your name right, by the way? You get my name right. It's a difficult name and it is what happens when my mother decides not to change her name and then my parents argue for long periods of time on what surname to give me. I so then know that experience. <laughs> my poor son has kind of got that experience. He's got my last name's Phanasia and my husband's name's Watson, so he's Casper mm-hmm. Grant Phanasia Watson but not hyphenated, so they can just put Watson at the end. <laughs> okay. So totally feel you. But welcome, Oliver. Really excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself and also what country you're on today? Yes, I am coming to you from the lands of the Yagar and Turrbal people here in Mianjin or Brisbane. I am a autistic writer, performer, theatre maker, advocate who creates works by and about and for autistic audiences as much as I can and then I do other plays and musicals and all kinds of different things to try to make the theatre a more accessible place for people with neurodivergency and disability. Brilliant. I'm so happy that you're on to talk about not just about um, what we talk about on the podcast, which is representation, but also your own representation and how you're inside the industry trying to make it more inclusive, which is super exciting. I also want to note that you graduated from Queensland University of Technology, which is where I went to uni. So QUT represent. Yes. Yes, I did go to QUT. The university for the real world, as they say. As they say, I don't know what that means. Is Monash <laughs> or any of the other universities in Fantasyland? I'm not sure. But yes, QUT is known as the university for the real world. <laughs> and you've had some amazing works that have come out quite recently. Uh, you debuted your cabaret, The No Bang Theory, in 2021. Uh, as part of the Undercover Artist Festival, and you took it to Wynnum Fringe, Adelaide Fringe, HOTA at the Gold Coast. HOTA is called HOTA, Home of the Arts. Home of the Arts, awesome, thank you. At the Gold Coast, the PIP Theatre and RPAC. Redlands Performing Arts Centre and PIP is a purpose and performance. It's a theatre slash charity that opens up its space to artists to tell stories of all kinds that have social importance. 
Fantastic. And you were recently at the Melbourne Fringe Festival, which is how I got to see your fantastic show. And you've also received the Access Arts Achievement Award and a Matilda Award for Best Emerging Artist. Yes, I have. What was that like for you? It was amazing. I should mention that I, because it's not on my resume because it happened very recently, that I was recently shortlisted for Autistic Queenslander of the Year. Ah, that's awesome. Congratulations. And I'll find out about that at the end of this month. So fingers crossed for that. Yes. So hopefully by the time this comes out, we maybe know. Yes. And hopefully you're the winner. So tell me a little bit about the No Bang Theory. You've been touring it for a couple of years now. Mm -hmm. It came out of a number of things. I always kind of knew I wanted to do a show that matched my lived experience of autism with my love of musical theatre. And I kind of always knew that that was at some point something that I wanted to do. And it had various titles over various times. I'm not weird, I'm just autistic. Various different titles, none of which I can remember now. I graduated from the aforementioned University of the Real World at the end of 2019. And at that stage, I'm like, okay, 2020 is going to be my year. I'm going to, you know, hit the ground running. I'm going to get all these opportunities. The world's your oyster. Then that obviously didn't happen because the world fundamentally changed and it made it very difficult to make theatre. And so I was sitting there in lockdown going, what is it that I want to do? What is it that I want to give and the idea that kind of came back was this cabaret about autism and autism representation and what that kind of meant and I think the no bang theory title kind of came from and the show was kind of birthed from I kept having to seemingly justify my own autism because Mm. I didn't present the way that autism is seen by most people and Mm, I'm a believer in the way that so many things are seen are informed by the film or television that people interact with. And for a lot of people, particularly people around my age, the go-to what autism looks like, and I put that in bunny ears, is Sheldon Cooper and the Big Bang Theory. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to create my kind of anti-Sheldon and tell my story. And during the lockdown, I was lucky enough to get a mentorship grant with a producer by the name of Alex Woodward, who was the understudy for Elder Price in the Book of Mormon and has done a number of different things. And he's a local Brisbane bloke who I know quite well. His most claim to fame is he's the son of uh, Brisbane weather woman Jenny Woodward, um, who uh, worked on the ABC for a long time and still does. But he came on board and said, I'll help you produce it and then kind of take a backseat once it's been made and let you take it off. So from there, that was $10,000, and we really developed the first 10 minutes of the show for a online festival in 2020. And then the following year, there was the In-Person Undercover Artist Festival, and we got some Arts Queensland funding to fully develop the rest of the show, and it debuted there, and it kind of has just kept going since then. That's Mm. the kind of story of the show. It's just... I've kept pushing it and kept doing it and venues have been interested in having me do it there. So I go, okay, and is kind of the process. So there's been these kind of opportunities have presented themselves as it's continued? Look, I'm not going to pretend that I haven't had to work for those opportunities. Of course, yeah. 
but they have kind of come up semi-regularly and venues particularly on the regional Queensland circuit so we took the show to Bundaberg we've as I mentioned to the Gold Coast I mean this isn't regional Queensland but oddly we took it to Darwin this year oh wow so oh and of course Redlands down that kind of way again in the regional Queensland space and so we and we're taking it to Toowoomba early next year so it's still going along we're just doing the kind of regional Queensland circuit and there have been some that I pushed for like I really pushed for Melbourne and Mm. took a big risk on taking the show to Melbourne but Mm. I knew that Melbourne is a different place when it comes to both neurodivergency and what it means to be an artist there's this big pressure in Brisbane right now of if you don't go to Sydney or Melbourne then you're not a real artist you can't be a real Mm. artist from Queensland and look I think that's mostly BS Agreed. and I just was like no but it's also like I know it's BS but when you hear it enough you start to believe it so it's like no mm. I need to take it to Melbourne to prove to myself that I can take it to Melbourne yeah and I was really privileged in just the interest that is there in Melbourne and the audiences mm. that I found in Melbourne were they massive every night no But I think as a starting point and a foundation for the kind of work that I want to do, which is for a long time, the idea of disability art or uh, other disabled artists talk about it like this as the disability arts ghetto, that it's Mm. separated from the mainstream art and it's to Mm. the side. Yeah. And I really want to slowly build the bridge between the mainstream art world and the kind of disability art world and kind of sit between them. But Mm. the struggle with that is there's no infrastructure in that place. So Mm. I'm slowly, constantly building the infrastructure, which is an added challenge and is difficult. Yeah. And I guess it's, um, I guess it means you have to kind of put yourself in situations that are a little bit risky by, you know, coming to Melbourne fringe and, and other interstate arenas, to try and push that people want to see disabled arts in the mainstream sort of setting. Um, So you're kind of like blazing the trail. So more people are encouraged to do this as well. Yes. And look, I think I've been very lucky that I have gotten government funding from both on a state, federal and council level. So I know I'm doing quite well. And that if I hadn't gotten federal government funding, I would have lost a lot of money on Melbourne. And in the end, we are made, I think, about $800. So, like, not a lot. But that was because the grants could fund mm. all my costs. Yeah. And that is the reality of being an independent artist mm. is you are reliant on government grants and you are reliant on independent uh, producers and generous benefactors mm. to support work, particularly for neurodivergent and disability-led work, there has been such a hesitancy for such a long time about its quality and its financial viability Mm. that we've had to really kind of shift the conversation about where that money is coming from and what that looks like and how Mm. we can go about making it more accessible because I can go on podcasts till the cows come home and continue to talk about it, but until I have the money and the opportunity And the executive function and all the kind of access things to find the team 
in order to do it because I can't do it by myself. I am one person. Mm. And the infrastructure that neurotypical people and non-disabled people go through aren't built for me. So I can't necessarily go through the same infrastructure. So not only am I doing it by myself, I'm building the infrastructure by myself in order to get the same opportunities that other people don't have to work hard for because they obviously do work hard, but take for granted in a certain sense. Yeah, hugely. And I think that also just highlights how much work goes into a show like yours particularly with a lot of the limitations because like you say it's the world is built for neurotypical people so yeah it's pretty amazing how successful you have become despite all those barriers as well because i'll tell this story and i think it's a really interesting one when i was bringing the show to melbourne we had to make the choice between finding a wheelchair accessible venue or paying an extra something like two and a half grand on venue hire Mm -hmm. that there were Cheaper venues that weren't wheelchair accessible. Because there's actually not many that are wheelchair accessible, unfortunately. There are not many venues that are wheelchair accessible. So it was a thing of going, while I fundamentally believe in making all my shows wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted, Mm -hmm. I couldn't afford Auslan interpretation every night. So I had to then limit and go, okay, we'll do one show with Auslan interpretation. And it was a balancing thing and it was just a really interesting going that the moment you start thinking about access, you are adding a lot of money to the Mm -hmm. overall cost and the running of a show. And that's not to say it's not worth it. It is fundamentally worth it. I have been in production meetings so many times of people. I had a meeting with a company that I won't name for the sake of the story. And I said, you should get Auslan interpreting for your shows. And they're like, well, we did that once. And only one Auslan interpreter, one person who needed Auslan came and we were paying so-and-so much a show for the Auslan interpretation, So, and if only one person comes, that's not worth the money. And I go, yes, it is. It fundamentally is because that one person could tell another one person it might not happen overnight, but if you invest in it long-term, you're going to start seeing a difference. Mm. I talk about this a lot as proactive and reactive access. Mm-hmm. That you, There are things you can do to be proactive for your access and building it in. And yep. then there are some times where you do just have to be reactive yep. and go, okay, this person needs this thing. Let's do that. And you can't have one without the other. You need both and they need to work in tandem with each other mm-hmm. in order to make the theatre and look, I haven't done much film work, but I'm sure it is true of film as well. Surely, to yeah. make film accessible, it is about working in tandem with each other and making it as accessible as possible. And to me, it's just an economic decision as well, because if you are making your shows more inclusive for people with a diverse range of needs, as a rule, you're going to have more people coming to your shows because generally people with disabilities will see that a venue is not wheelchair accessible and not go see that there's no Auslan interpreting and they won't go or they won't even um, look into it because they assume that there won't be anything. So For me, yeah. it's like people say, oh, we did it once and it didn't happen, so we're not doing it again. Yeah. That's not so, the solution. The solution is no. you do it once and you get maybe five people. You do it again, you get 10. Yeah. You do it again, you get 15. Because 
Disabled people have been hurt and marginalised for a long time. They're really hesitant to come back into a space. Exactly, yeah. Also, it means listening if the community tell you you've got it wrong Mm. and not view that as an attack on you. Mm. It is if you're working in the space and there are, I talk about this a lot, well-meaning neurotypicals and well-meaning non-disabled people who need to be our allies. Being a good ally means not making it about you and not thinking you know better than the disabled people. Mm-hmm. And I've seen so many people think, oh, I know better, so I'm going to do this. Or we spoke to this one uh, one disabled person who said this thing, so mm-hmm. you're actually wrong because if you say something different. Yeah. And I go, no, people's access needs are in direct conflict with each other. Disabled people and neurodivergent people are not a monolith. We hmm. don't all agree with one another on every point. I know, back to the no bang theory, there are a lot of neurodivergent autistic people that love Sheldon Cooper. Mm. And they're yeah. seeing themselves. And I think that's great. Like, I personally don't like the show and think it is actively harmful. But I'm not going to tell someone who really likes it and finally saw themselves, take it away from you. I'm going to explain why I disagree. Yeah. And try to start a conversation going, oh, if you liked that and you saw yourself in that, maybe try this other thing that I think handles it better. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to tell anyone to not enjoy something. And Mm. I think too often in in my industry, um, it becomes a one-size-fits-all, oh, we've done this thing, therefore we're accessible now. No, access is a process. Mm. Access is a thing that takes time and hard work and listening. A company that will, again, remain nameless said to me, they just announced their new season for 2024 and there were no disabled artists programmed on it. And I had a bit of a go at them and said, why weren't there no disabled artists programmed? And And they said, well, we only programmed who asked, you know, who came forward and no disabled artists came forward, and so we couldn't program what wasn't there. And I kind of went, well, why ask yourself, why didn't disabled artists feel like they could come to you? Mm, yeah, it's not like they're not out there it's wanting not like they're not out. to perform. You know, why didn't they feel like they could come to you? You know some disabled artists. Firstly, you know me. You know I exist. Even if I couldn't work it for me this time, Come to me, I know names, and I could reach out to some of the disabled artists I know and go, what do you think of this? Do you want to do something in this space? Like, I don't think it's simple or it's hard work, but it is Mm. worth it if you do it right, which is what I'm trying to do with all my works. Mm. Even the ones that might not necessarily directly deal with autism or disability head on, that doesn't mean... An example I talk about all the time is you could put on Hamlet and still make that an accessible experience about and for disabled people. Mm. Like Hamlet as a character is a character that is constantly second-guessing his emotions. He's mm-hmm. going, oh, but why do people do that? Why? I, it doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't get it. Why is ha-? That is the experience of so many neurodivergent people of people making actions that don't really make sense. Mm, and yeah. so you 
it is that lived experience. And you can make a Hamlet that speaks to that fully without changing a single piece of dialogue. But Mm -hmm. it's just about changing how we think about neurodiversity and about theatre and about what accessible theatre looks like to make that work. I hugely agree. I guess it's it's focusing not just on the neurotypical experience, but the neuro variances of everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really a concept that you know you can put a ramp in, you can include a Auslan interpreter at particular times, or use a sensory room. But if you're not focusing on it from that lens of being inclusive, those little piecemeal things that promote a bit of inclusion only go so far. And I think that's what yourself and other advocates like yourself are trying to shift is that whole mentality that really needs to come with that. And I think it is not just about, I mean, it's a great first step hiring neurodivergent people to play neurodivergent roles that and disabled roles. And that's a great first step. And that for a long time, hasn't happened. So it is yeah. great that we're now starting to see people like Chloe Hayden get mm. those opportunities. I love Chloe. You're not going to hear me say a bad word about Chloe. I don't think it's possible to. <laughs> no. I also think, was her character on Heartbreak High written by a neurodivergent person? Was there a neurodivergent person in that writer's room, in that directing team, in those crew roles that will... I know a number of neurodivergent people that, try to watch Heartbreak High and find it overstimulating because it Mm. was too loud, too much going on. And so they're not seeing the amazing access acting work that Chloe Mm. is doing on that show. Yeah, that's a good point. And that is about going, Chloe Hayden, it is great that you have Chloe Hayden, but Chloe Hayden can't be the only neurodivergent person on that set. 100%, yeah. And she shouldn't be. Mm. Every... uh, aspect of that show should have neurodivergency in mind from the writing to the directing and I just think it's sad because it's mm, I know I've heard some horror stories of look at us we've got a neurodivergent actor or we've got a neurodivergent writer that's it we're done yeah and it's like in every other minority group that would not be good enough no no exactly It's more like the token character or the token person on set that can inform. I use this logic a lot, particularly when it comes to First Nations storytelling, because I think the direction that First Nations storytelling is going right now is where I think disabled and neurodivergent storytelling should be heading. Mm. In this day and age, you're not going to tell a First Nations story without at least a First Nations co-writer and a new First Nations co-director on your project. Mm -hmm. You're realistically just not going to do that, but we think it is perfectly appropriate for neurodivergent and disabled stories to continue to do that. And on that note too, in Heartbreak High, as you mentioned, because we did cover Mm -hmm. Heartbreak High with Zoe Simmons, Mm -hmm. they did have, as you say, a First Nations person consulting and writing and, and also actors in the show, particularly around those particular For the episode with, with the, because um, I watched it because I know Thomas Weatherall who played the First Nations. Malachi. Yeah, he was at QT at the same time I was. So we oh. know each other quite well. Fantastic. So I watched it and I he, he spoke very openly about the importance of having Mame Wyatt in the writer's room and telling those stories respectfully and honestly. Not saying I didn't think Chloe Hayden did a great job, because she did, Mm. but it was on her 
Yes. And she has spoken about it in interviews about they crafted that character in consultation with her. Mm. It should not be on Chloe Hayden to do no, that. No, no. Exactly. It's There's a lot of pressure, particularly for people who are already, you know, Chloe's someone who already had a bit of a following. She was already quite popular to sort of embody everything about autism. And I think she's almost like the poster person for autism, at least for a little while, because of that role when, it, yeah, it's a lot of pressure to put on her and it can backfire. She's had to basically... She hasn't shut down her social media, but her social media is now run by a team. Of, mm. She's not running her own social media anymore because she was getting constant attacks, death threats, yeah. trolls, serious yeah. abuse on social media because she is the only one in the, like, I'm doing my bit, but I'm yeah. nowhere near on the level of Chloe Hayden. Huge popularity level. And I think companies like Netflix and Disney Plus and all of them will go, oh, we have Chloe Hayden, we don't need... We've ticked that box. <laughs> We've ticked that box. And I'm like, we don't play ticker box with other minority groups. We just... Ableism is the last ism that goes unchecked. Because yeah. the isms and the phobias, we are so aware of them now. We're aware of homophobia. We're aware of sexism. We're aware of racism. And we're all doing our bit to combat it. Mm. Not enough people are aware of ableism as even a thing thing enough to combat and it's still very intrinsic in policies and procedures and institutions that we're in in queensland as of two days ago you now need a medical certificate to drive if you're autistic i've been driving for five years and i now need a doctor to say you can keep doing what you're already doing i think that it makes me sick to my stomach that is such a backward step why would a doctor even know whether you're capable of driving in the first place? That's not their job. Oh, so, yeah, that's a really good example that ableism is not only not decreasing, but it is increasing in many areas. Yes. Yeah. So frustrating. Um, but, yeah, I am totally with you. Uh, and it's also great to get your perspective because, you know, Heartbreak High is so highly respected and well regarded for its um, representation but it doesn't mean that it's not flawed in many ways. So it's really good to get that perspective. On that note, because we were talking about the no-bang theory, which focuses on how you really detest Sheldon as a character, mm -hmm. can you tell me more about why Sheldon is problematic in the Big Bang Theory in terms of its autistic representation? I think there are a couple of things. One is that they've clearly coded him with autism. Like, there is no doubt that when you're, Jim Parsons, who is playing him, talks about in interviews, oh, I did all this research about autism to play this character... He doesn't accidentally do that. Mm. He's doing that because someone has told him to do that. And mm -hmm. there is something in the writing that suggested that he go there. Yeah. That doesn't accidentally happen. I've known a lot of actors and I am one. You don't do the research on something like that unless your boss tells you to. Well, you don't have time to look at all different possibilities. You just want to study the character that you're playing. <laughs> and you'll ask, and you'll ask early on, what do you think is up with this character? And they'll mm. say, well, we think maybe this. And you'll do the work on that. So they've the writers have clearly made a choice to yeah. code that character with autistic. But they then don't, one, diagnose the name character. Mm. They speak in euthanisms. They will say repeatedly on that show, it's a running gag, I'm not crazy, my mother had me tested. <sighs> tested for what? 
What are we? What has she got you tested for, Sheldon? Like, there's there's a few. That's sanest as well as ableist. Yeah. What is the test for crazy? We don't. Yeah. And I just go. I think the reason they don't name the diagnosis fundamentally is if you name the diagnosis, suddenly the butt of the joke is that a disabled person. Yeah. And then they have to manage that. And manage that. And, I, and there's expectations and there's things. But when you're laughing at a slightly weird, quirky person that says weird things and has weird behaviours, people feel comfortable about doing that in a way that they wouldn't feel comfortable doing at laughing at a disabled person. I think there is a brilliant show with uh, about a Sheldon Cooper-like character where you laugh with him. Yeah. I don't... I think there are some things that Sheldon does that is inherently funny, but you need to be aware of where the joke is landing mm. and where it is heading at any given time. And I think how you do that is having a neurodivergent person in your writer's room, having a neurodivergent actor playing that role that mm-hmm. fundamentally understands that and so isn't going to have to, as Jim Parsons put it, research autism and read books on autism because they fundamentally understand it yeah and that's not to say there isn't more to learn about autism there is always more to learn about autism i'm learning more about autism all the time but on a fundamental level you just get it yeah and i think that's what i want to see more of in my film and in my tv and in my theater as well is just a fundamental understanding Mm. and a kind of kind of going autism is not just Sheldon Cooper. Yeah. Also, this is a broader problem that I'm very happy to talk about and I think it's good. Autism is not just straight white men. Yeah. I, yes. I am a straight white man, but I also <laughs> acknowledge the plethora and the uniqueness of trans autistic stories, female autistic stories, which is why I think it is great that Chloe Hayden is making such a big difference in female autism representation out in the world because I see far more of my my experience even as a straight white autistic man in Chloe Hayden's understanding of autism than I ever did in Jim Parsons and Sheldon Cooper yeah that I don't like science I've never been good at it I've never had interest in particle physics and look I like a Marvel movie but I wouldn't say I'm a comic book nerd mm-hmm. there are just things about that experience that is just not mine mm. Because the spectrum is a spectrum, and I think the more we show the diversity within that spectrum in both gender, sexuality, and type of, not type of autism, there's autism is autism, but I mean the manifestation of autism, how that tends to manifest in special interests and the types of things that we tend to hyperfixate on, because there are common patterns, and there are a lot of autistic people that do hyperfixate on the sciences but Mm. they're not the only type of hyperfixation but it is the only type of hyperfixation we see because through things like rain man and sheldon cooper they became the stereotype yeah i was just thinking too like i've heard so many people say my son's a bit of a sheldon cooper or such and such as a bit of a rain man. They became, like you say, the stereotype and the baseline in which to decide whether someone has autism or not. And there's such very stereotypical depictions, like you say, very stereotypical hyperfixations and mannerisms. 
which I can only say because I surmise that because I've actually never watched it because probably for this <laughs> similar reason. I I think about this a lot. As a show, it is well made. Like it is not like it's very it's, popular. It's very popular and it is popular for a reason. The writing is good. It is got good cinematography, it is well shot, it has good comedic beats and it is timed well. Like on a made level, it is well made, but it's the poison apple that sits at the center of it. There's something rotten in the state of Denmark. Like at the center of it, it is rotten. So this is something the director of both my shows, The No Bang Theory and my upcoming show, Santa Claus Autistic, says all the time, is that you can only roll a shit in so much glitter. <laughs> I'm going to use that one. That's great. That you can make it look pretty all you want, but at the end of the day, if there's a shit in the center, it's still a piece of shit. Still stinks. It still stinks. And I think that's true of the no the Big Bang Theory, not the No Bang Theory. The No Bang Theory is really good. Yes. Uh, if I don't say so myself. Um, <laughs> the Big Bang Theory is that it is fundamentally flawed from top to bottom in how they thought about that character. That character was always a punchline and always meant to be a punchline for the audience to sympathize with the neurotypical people around him trying to deal with him. Yes, yes. It would be so easy to make that show about Sheldon Cooper's not understanding the world and his quirky observations of it and this sometimes how he's hard work, but that centers his experience. But the heart of the show, while Sheldon Cooper's the main character, the one that everyone cares about, the kind of hero of the show is Leonard and his roommate and Penny, the kind of normal girl across the hall, mm. who have to deal with Sheldon. Yeah. It is Sheldon is the big, the obstacle that they deal with. That creates the plot lines. That creates the plot. He's the MacGuffin of the plot that forces yep. the plot forward, not the kind of interesting fundamental heart of the show of which makes it interesting. And I think there is a better version of probably not the Big Bang Theory, but a different show with a very similar character that shifts that perspective and is going to be fundamentally better for it. Absolutely. And in your show, uh, The No Bang Theory, you talk a lot about um, disability representation and what you prefer. But before we get to that, you also talk about what it was like for you growing up in hot, stinking Brisbane, <laughs> mm -hmm. also at an all-boys school, Catholic school, is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And the traumatic experiences of not being supported in that environment and being almost, it seems, punished for being autistic and a lot of those experiences you went through. Uh, what was that like, rehashing some of those experiences for your show? It was freeing and it was also interesting in that I still carry those scars, not literally, but figuratively those wounds are still there and affect my everyday life. I am very quick to perceive a slight against me because I was constantly seemingly being punished for things that I didn't understand. So I'm very quick to feel, oh, I'm being punished. That's not fair. One thing I hate, and I think about this a lot, and it's big things and it's minor things. I hate feeling like when I've done the right thing, I still get in trouble for it anyway. And that mm. dates directly back to the school years and getting in trouble for like, 
oh, but I did the right thing. I followed the rules. Why am I getting in trouble? But I just didn't pick up on the sometimes rules are not rules. They're not suggestions. They're kind of like, I'll, I'll tell the story that I talk about in my show Santa Claus is Autistic that we'll talk about in a minute. Sure. In primary school, there was a rule that you weren't allowed to play with sticks. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, you could poke someone's eye out and it would be disastrous. So they made this rule, you weren't allowed to play with sticks. And there was someone that every day would play with sticks all the time. And I would always get mad and go, that's against the rules. And I would go up to the teachers and go, they're playing with sticks, sir. They're playing with sticks, sir. Or, you know. And the teacher would go, oh, come on, it's going to be fine, you know. Just leave them alone and you won't get hurt kind of stuff. And I'd go, but no, the rules say you're not allowed to play with sticks. Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you doing anything? And then so one day I got really frustrated that this person was always playing with sticks. So I walked up to them and grabbed them and forcibly removed the sticks from their hands. And then I got in trouble because I didn't keep my hands to myself And we weren't allowed to have physical contact with other students, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, I did the right thing. They did the wrong thing first. Why am I getting in trouble for that? And while that incident, you know, no one is playing with sticks really when I'm 25, that kind of manifestation and fear of perceived no one listening when I'm saying these are the, you know, I just lose it when I Mm. feel like I've done the right thing and I'm getting punished for it. Yeah. And I think what No Bang and Santa Claus's Autistic have done is put a narrative to these seemingly unconnected events and go, no, there is a trajectory here and there is a thing that has happened. Mm. And these, before they were disjointed events that existed as this thing happened to me, then this thing happened to me and this thing happened to me. By doing these shows, we're creating a kind of spider's web, a tapestry. It might not be a straight line, but it's a. these things are all connected and form a whole of who I am. Yeah. Yeah. These are not, and you, I think we as humans are very good at narrativizing our lives. We do it all the time. We go, if this thing happens to us, then that means this thing will happen. And it just flows on. Like we narrativize all the time. Mm-hmm. By literally narrativizing my life, it actually makes it easier because the story I tell becomes the story that I actually tell and I practice it and I reinforce it. Mm. That pe- people can't come and go, Oliver, that didn't happen. It didn't happen like that. But I go, no, yes, it did. I, that is my truth. Yeah, that's fundamentally experience. Yeah. So it's almost a cathartic, almost therapeutic way of processing your experiences and your trauma. Almost, you know, there's a there's a therapeutic model called narrative therapy, which really is about telling your story and mm-hmm. talking through what that story looks like and then maybe, you know, holding on to this story or changing the story in a way that makes it easier to sort of sit with that story or I'm not giving it the full explanation it deserves, but no, that's kind it, of it what theatre can be. It definitely makes sense. And I think certainly I wouldn't say my theatre is my therapy, but it is therapeutic. Therapeutic, For me. Mm. And that it comes from a, whenever I do a new show and start thinking about a new show, I think 
What have I learned about myself since I wrote my last show that I'm ready to explore that I wasn't ready to explore last time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the things in my past that are still left untapped for various reasons because of X, Y, and Z? Where is Where are the things that are going to play their part? Does it ever get too much to sort of go back there and no, process it again? I think it... I don't start something until I processed it. Mm-hmm. That is, when traumatic things happen, and they do happen, I'm not like, oh, I have to write a play about this right now. <laughs> or I have to do... But it's like, I will sit on it. Mm. There are things that happened three or four years ago that I'm only now starting to be ready to talk about in my work. Mm. And who knows if they will ever see the light of day. Hopefully they will, but that's not fully in my hands and it shouldn't be fully in my hands. That I think that I only start a story when I'm ready to tell it and I'm ready to tell it because I start telling it. Yeah, yeah. And that there are things in my next show that I don't think I would have have been ready to talk about until other things put those things in perspective Mm. and getting to an end point for a long time particularly with no bank theory i talk a lot about my view on relationships in that show it's a play on words i'd literally talk about not having sex so like for a long time i viewed my autism as the reason that i wasn't in a relationship Mm -hmm. and it's like people don't like me because i'm too autistic and it was only by doing the no bang theory and really engaging in it that i started to go there are a whole bunch of reasons why I'm still single at 25. Some of which are to do with being neurodivergent. A lot of them aren't. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with that. I look, I still have work to do of being at peace with being single. And I think we always, society teaches us that relationships are end goals in such a way that it is always going to be a process to unlearn that. Yes, absolutely. And I'm still in a process of unlearning it. And I think that's fine and that's good. But I think by doing No no Bang Theory and talking about my view of relationships and the struggles that I've had for a long time, I felt I needed a girlfriend in order to be normal. Mm, Yeah, yeah. That I think being okay with that means I'm now in a much better place for a relationship to form naturally. Yeah. That I wasn't until I made No Bang Theory because I hadn't unpacked what had happened, it wasn't that I hadn't gotten over the relation, the non-relationship that I talk about in that show, but the scars of it were still there. Mm-hmm. And until I shone a light on them and went, they're there, that's fine, you have to accept that will be a part of you probably forever, I can't begin to move forward. Yeah, yeah. That for me, theatre is about shining a light on the thing. Mm-hmm. And the more I can do that, the more healing it is, that it is not too much because Mm. what becomes too much is not dealing with the problem Mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean the moment i shine a light on something i'm ready to write a play about it no it just means i begin to get ready and begin to understand a process of which a play may one day come out of Mm -hmm. and it's that process itself that sounds like not just the process of performing but also the process of writing and creating that is part of that healing journey yes definitely yeah
Well, this is probably a good segue into your next performance, which is Santa Claus is Autistic. Yes. So tell me where the concept of Santa Claus is Autistic came from and how long have you been working on it? It started kind of, there were things that had to get cut from the No Bang Theory because the No Bang Theory was running too long. And the joke in the room became, save it for the sequel. <laughs> yeah. And so I think I was, all, for a long time, this hypothetical project was called No Bang Theory 2. <laughs> no, it was called, no, I can tell you what it was literally called. It was called the No Bang Theory 2 Shit Never Dies. Um, <laughs> Love it. And for a long time, it was that. It was the next cabaret in my exploration of autism mm -hmm. kind of series. And the longer that went on and I started thinking about it, I'm like, about a year and a half into No Bang Theory, I'm like, okay, I think I'm ready to start on whatever the next show is. Mm -hmm. So this was about midway through last year, so midway through 2022. Mm -hmm. So I had a lull after Adelaide Fringe last year, which is in about March, through to about September, I didn't have any gigs. I just, the work dried up life happened. So there was a long, long period where I was sitting down, wallowing in my own company. So I went, okay, let's start thinking about what's next. Santa Claus is Autistic kind of came out of that of like, I felt I couldn't call it No Bang Theory 2 because I can picture the audience going, oh, I didn't see No Bang Theory 1. Do I really want to see No Bang Theory 2? Good point. So it became about how do I make No Bang Theory 2 without it being No Bang Theory 2? And the more that evolved, the more that evolved, it became Santa Claus's Autistic, which I think is a wholly independent show from No Bang Theory. But if you have seen No Bang Theory, it serves as a kind of spiritual sequel. Mm -hmm. That nice. the No Bang Theory is the story of me and a journey to a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Santa Claus is Autistic is the story of, okay, you have a diagnosis. How does the world react to that? How do you find a community in a world that doesn't understand you now that you've got an autism diagnosis? Because mm -hmm. an autism diagnosis, at least according to the No Bang Theory, meant that I could finally understand myself. And it was yeah. that. It was that mm -hmm. for me. But just because I understand myself doesn't mean the world gets it. Mm -hmm. And so... Santa Claus is Autistic is very much about how do I, how did I try to get the world to react, the ups and downs of that. Yeah. And it's about finding community and why I chose Santa as my kind of fictional cat, the Sheldon Cooper role, if you will, is that in my mind, Santa Claus is Autistic. He makes a list and he checks it twice and that might be the most autistic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but he has... Strict black and white thinking. He splits kids into either naughty or nice. He arrives in the middle of the night to avoid social contact. He has a strict diet of only milk and cookies. All these things that we associate with autism, Santa has. He wears the same thing every day. He does wear the same thing every day. That's a good one. I might include that in the next draft. Um, <laughs> everything that Santa displays as autism characteristics, we go, oh, Santa. That's not, like, we celebrate those things. We write mm -hmm. carols about him. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out. It. Like, we celebrate those clear autistic characteristics. But when actually autistic people display those same characteristics, they get shunned, they get ostracized, they get diagnosed. 
there's a very different reaction. Mm-hmm. And I thought on a community level, using Santa Claus as a metaphor to make that point is going to be really interesting. Yes. And it was one of the things that I decided very early on is that there would, this is a line from the show, despite what the title would suggest, this is not actually a Christmas show. It's about me using Santa and Christmas as a metaphor to make a point. Yes. Yeah. So it was always from design, not designed to just be performed between November 25 and December 25 every year. It can and should be performed in January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October. It should be performed all year round because it can be performed all year round because autistic people exist all year round and autistic people are displaying those characteristics all year round. Yeah. People need to learn those lessons all year round and not just go, ha, 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 Santa, so sweet. Every Christmas we see Santa do all these cool quirky things yeah we like it for this short period of time but only for this short period of time there is an irony that we are i am now debuting it in november december and that was always going to be the case because that's when venues are interested to program a show with the title santa claus is autistic that is fundamental but i hope and it is my genuine hope that this is successful in such a way that it doesn't need to be limited to the last eight weeks of the year. And I feel like Christmas is so beloved that even if people don't know much about it and it's on the schedule for, you know, a comedy festival, they're still going to be very interested. I love Christmas all year round. Yes. What you've just said to reminds me of like, you know, days, like International Day of People with Disability, Are You Okay Day, and all of those days where it's like, let's celebrate uh, disability on this day or let's focus on mental illness on this day, but then ignore it for the other 364 days of the year. Yeah, Are You Okay Day is one that I think is really interesting because you get asked, are you okay on that day? You could be fine that day, but two (laughs) weeks from then, you could be in deep, deep shit. But if no one asks, are you okay, except on Are You Okay Day, then it's got, Are You Okay Day is about mental health awareness and lowering suicide rates. If you ask people, are you okay one day a year, I don't think suicide rates are magically going to go down. No, it's not going to do much. (laughs) No. For it to make an effect, you need to find that one person who is having a severe mental health episode on that one day in, I think, mid-October. I don't, yeah. I can't quite September, remember when. September. <laughs> Clearly, it's not that important to us. <laughs> it's not that important. But find that one depressed person on that one day. The chances of that happening seem small to me. Mm-hmm. I mean... If that happens and someone's life is saved because on an Are You Okay Day someone asked Are You Okay, that is great. And I think that is a good thing. But I think you need to do more than that. I yeah. think you need people need to be asking Are You Okay every day. I think people need to be examining their privilege all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I was trying to create with Santa Claus as Autistic is a veneer that will get people in to then start learning. And people do love a Christmas show. And I'm able to get them in with the veneer of Santa and the kind of carols by candlelight vibes that I put out. And one of the things that I do with this show is I don't sing a single Christmas song in it. You don't. I was, that was my next question. (laughs) I don't because this show is not about Christmas. And so Mm. why would I use that language and that kind of thing? It's like, Mm. no, this show isn't about Christmas. And look, that might be a marketable mistake. We'll see when 
it premieres, but... I mean, generally, Christmas carols are not the greatest songs, so I think that was a correct choice to make. I find them yes. annoying anyway. <laughs> yeah, there are some nice ones, but overall, I don't need to hear Last Christmas every day for six weeks. Exactly. <laughs> The other thing that Santa Claus is Autistic gave me the opportunity to do is create the Spectrum Singers Choir. Yes, tell me about that. It kind of came from the necessity of the show and a need for good community broadening things. Is There were two things that went on. I felt like I was the only autistic person in the industry at the time. Chloe Hayden was around, but she's, you know, got Chloe Hayden things going on. So I'm not, I've sent her a couple of emails and not heard anything back. Like we're not on the same page. We're not talking about these things on a day-to-day basis. So Mm -hmm. I felt kind of very alone in the kind of neurodivergency space. So I wanted to find a community Mm. of artists that got it, fundamentally just got it. And I also wanted with No Bang Theory compared to Santa Claus is Autistic, I did wanted Santa Claus is Autistic to not just be No Bang Again with slightly shitter jokes, mm-hmm. which is the problem with so many follow-ups. They try yes. to replicate the magic of the first thing that was successful, and it just feels the same thing but slightly less original. Mm-hmm. I didn't want that. So I needed to find a way for Santa Claus is Autistic to stand out. And in the show... There was a number that really required a big, big thing, and it become synonymous with having a. You know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to spoil this. Um, it, it will still be effective even if you somewhat know it's coming. I was doing a still call Australia home parody. Oh, I'm very excited. <laughs> and I'd always included from very early on a still call Australia home parody. That song has become synonymous with being performed by a choir. It mm-hmm. just has. Yeah. And it was. Oh, I know what I can do. I can have my own choir. Then it was pointed out to me that's very expensive. How are you going to pay for that? And then I kind of thought about it and I realized I could come at this from two angles and go, I can find my community and in this show about autism and autism community, put a community on stage. Mm -hmm. And so then content informed form and form informed content Mm -hmm. that it all kind of came together and went, oh, no, the Spectrum Singers are a fundamental part of this show because this show is about them just as much as it is about me and about Mm. it might be my story and my anecdotes and my kind of point of view, but that's just because I'm the one that got lucky enough to make the breakthroughs and make the chances and write the grant applications and blah, 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 blah. But it could just as easily be any one of my choir members, maybe not anyone, but a lot of my choir members could just as easily have been the lead of this show. And mm-hmm. I think that is by design and that is brilliant. Yeah. It puts it on that other level, the extra level too. Yes. And I think that's what I was really trying to do with this show is like, how do I elevate without sacrificing the heart and the humor and the kind of intrinsic, not smallness, but the intimacy of what made No Bang Theory so effective? Yeah. And I think that's where the Spectrum Singers came from. And then thanks to Brisbane City Council and a number of other different grants from Access Arts Queensland and Creative Australia, as they're now called, I was able to fund that choir, which has got 11 neurodivergent singers from across the southeast corner of Queensland. Fantastic. And then my plan would be, if I was to say take it to Melbourne, would be to find neurodivergent singers in Melbourne 
to talk to their community and play the part of the choir in their community and wherever I take it always be about finding people autistic people in that community to tell their stories and I think that is crucial in Mm. continuing to grow not just my brand because I mean it does get bums and seats to see my show and I take the box office so like it does grow my brand but it also means that someone in that choir might make their own show and know that it is possible and see how that is done and I think that's only going to be a benefit to the whole absolutely it's gonna mean that in five ten years suddenly I have a whole community around me that I can say, I want a neurodivergent lighting designer. Okay, I know this guy that I met on this project five years ago. Let's get him in. Yeah, I know a neurodivergent production manager, a neurodivergent director, a neurodivergent video designer. I know people of all different jobs that have lived experience of neurodiversity. So then suddenly I can create more effective storytelling if people are getting those opportunities that weren't there for them before. Yeah. And I think that's what the Spectrus thing is meant to me. And I'm super proud of all of them. I'm so proud of all they've done and all they've seen. And I think some of them probably, there's one in particular that I'm incredibly proud of, that she is incredibly sound sensitive and has a lot of anxiety associated with that. And the thought for her of being a professional performer probably seems a world away. But she has the talent, Mm. but she's never had the opportunity to go, this is okay for you to pursue. And I think what the Spectrum Singers represents, hopefully over time, is the next time I do a show, I'm going to think of her Mm -hmm. and go, come along and play. Let's figure something out. And my hope is that that's what happens. And she finds her path forward because I think she deserves to find a path forward. And I think she has the talent in order to find a path forward. But mm. the industry would look at her right now and go, you're too difficult. That kind of gives me a segue into another question that I want to ask you. If there are any theatre industrial people <laughs> listening to this podcast or companies, what would you tell them or what would you advise them to do to make their theatre companies or collectives or whatever they are, theatres, more accessible for neurodivergent people? There are a couple of things. It goes back to what I was talking about, proactive and reactive. Yeah. First step is when someone comes to you and says, I need this to happen, your response is yes. I will do it. (laughs) I will endeavour to do it. Even if it's I can't guarantee that it will happen, but I will try my damnedest to make sure that happens for you. Then there are things like making relaxed performances. Mm -hmm. Even if it means sacrificing that disco ball that you think is absolutely crucial and that moment of sound explosion, you don't need that sound explosion. You can turn down the volume on that moment. (laughs) Shakespeare made plays without the whiz bang. And we still read Shakespeare's plays today. We don't need the lights that shine in your face and blind you for five minutes. We don't need... strobe lights, etc. We don't need the strobe lights. We don't need the loud gunshot to go off every five minutes when they're shooting a gun. We can figure that out. We can use our imaginations. 
It's about being clever and being proactive and thinking about it. Just thinking, let's not do this because this is the way it's always been done. Let's, in consultation with communities, and if you're professionals in paid consultation with communities about making it accessible and listen and even possibly sacrificing in order to make that happen. Mm -hmm. It might mean instead of taking that solo director credit or to a director that you think you're the God's gift to man, taking a co-director credit Mm. and giving an opportunity to a neurodivergent artist that's hungry that might not otherwise get that opportunity to have that director's credit. Mm-hmm. Because having a director's credit on particularly like your major big companies, like your Melbourne theatre companies, your Sydney theatre companies, your Queensland theatre companies, like your state theatre companies and companies of similar sizes in different cities, to get a director credit on that, even a co-director credit on that, will make a career. Mm. It can make a career. And so for those big name directors that are working in those companies, no one's going to care that you were the co-director on that play instead of the sole credited director yeah they're past the ideas of the auteur theory we all know that's bullshit so can we stop being so precious about our credit and find the right person for that job yeah and even if it means sacrificing your power and don't go oh we have a neurodivergent writer in the room we have a neurodivergent actor in the room no you need a neurodivergent director in that room you need Someone that is paid to make sure those things happen. Yeah. And don't expect neurodivergent people to work for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the biggest theatre companies in Brisbane, I have been expected to work for nothing. Hmm. And they have the money. It is very insulting. They have the money to pay me. Yeah. And I was going in on this project maybe one or two days a week Hmm. for the four weeks of the rehearsal period. It wouldn't have been much. Yeah. Like, it would have been enough, but it wouldn't have broken your box office. It wouldn't have been the difference between breaking even and not breaking even. Yeah. It would have been maybe a percentage or maybe 2 or 3% of your overall profit. I don't think you're going bankrupt off of that. (laughs) And if you are, you have other serious issues of which to you be dealing with in your box office. And you shouldn't be sacrificing access to make ends meet. You should be going, we don't need that strobe light that costs $5,000 a night to run or whatever. If you're in that financial strait that you can't afford to pay your access consultant. Maybe rethink your finances. (laughs) Maybe rethink your financial plans and where you're spending your money. Yeah. I wonder too, like I don't know that much at all about the theatre industry and I can only know what I've read about the film industry but I bet there's a lot of monopoly with particular personalities who like to have that power and control and that um, recognition that there's a name that I'm not saying in this conversation (laughs) has become synonymous as the x-person show we always go see the x-person show because they always make great theatre I never miss an X-person show. And they have become the name that's associated with a type of show. Mm -hmm. And their brand was brought in to direct a neurodivergent work, which I think is great. And I think that neurodivergent people deserve to have their stories told at the level of Mm X-director. X-director, in my opinion, was not able to take his foot off the pedal in such a way that meant 
being an ex-director with so-and-so show for the neurodivergent web work in a way that he absolutely would for an Asian-led work or for a First Nations-led work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it comes back to what I was saying much earlier, that ableism is the last ism that we have yet to acknowledge. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, like, I guess there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the theatre space to get to a place where things are more inclusive. On that note, musicals are the, is your passion, essentially. Yeah. And we were just briefly talking about yeah, some representation of um, autistic characters like in Big Bang Theory. But I'm curious what disability or autistic representation you've noted in musicals particularly because we've touched a little bit on musicals in this podcast but I haven't seen a lot of autistic representation in musicals particularly, so I'm curious. I think this might be a controversial answer. I think musicals are an inherently autistic art form. Mm -hmm. Musicals aren't subtle. Mm, They fundamentally aren't subtle in their emotion. Mm -hmm. And for neurodivergent people, and I think why there are so many neurodivergent people drawn into musical theatre, is that it is fundamentally a neurodivergent art form. It is an art form that doesn't regulate and show emotion typically. Mm. Neurotypicals do not break into song. It is inherently neurodivergent art form. And so I think you think of every great protagonist in a musical theatre and I could make an argument that they're neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Alpha Baron Wicked, the lead of Wicked, is fundamentally neurodivergent. She is an outsider that struggles to fit in. She has rage moments where she melts down and magic is displayed. It is a giant neurodivergency metaphor. I think the problem comes is that neurotypicals don't realise that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That we're not seeing openly neurodivergent performers talking about this. So this is interesting and I think it is amazing. For the first time as of a week ago, openly neurodivergent people are on Broadway for the first time. Amazing. In a mu- I believe it's the first time, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> As of a week ago, there is a new musical on Broadway called How to Dance in Ohio, which mm-hmm. is about a group of neurodivergent students going to their f- prom, the prom or the formal for the first time. That is the first time that neurodivergent actors are telling a neurodivergent story on a Broadway stage. But I think, realistically, they've been there forever and they mm-hmm. can and should be there forever, that there is nothing really stopping Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady being played by a neurodivergent person. Mm. Eliza Doolittle speaks differently and doesn't behave the way she's meant to behave. So she is ostracized for it and then eventually learns how to behave and be herself within that society and then ends up having to sacrifice for that. Isn't that the neurodivergent tale in a nutshell? Isn't that an autistic story fundamentally? And the only I've only been in a couple of musicals because I did do drama at school, and one was Guys and Dolls. So the the two gangsters in Guys and Dolls, and then they have their two love interests. Mm. And I think there's the kind of super religious one that has strict rules and strict. These are the way that things are meant to go. These are the things that I need to do. And I think that's a neurodivergent story, just as much as I've been ostracized and I've kind of ended up in this life of crime because I didn't fit in and I can't sit down because I'm rocking the boat too much to 
quote, guys and dolls, sit down, you're rocking the boat. Um, <laughs> that is an inherently neurodivergent story. And I think we need to start opening up neurodivergent storytelling and start having a conversation because it's all over music theatre, which is why in both my shows, I use musical theatre music to go, you know, it's there. I don't have to work particularly hard to make these songs neurodivergent. Mm. They're just neurodivergent. Yeah. That I just think we need to start opening up our conversations about how we can get neurodivergent storytelling on stage. Mm. Because I think it is great that we are starting very early stages of neurodivergent people being able to tell stories mm-hmm. about neurodivergence. They're not the only places we need to see neurodivergent people on stage. Yes. We need to see neurodivergent people playing Hamlet, playing Roxy Hart in Chicago, playing the leads in the big touring musicals that tour around the country in your kind of big theatres, like Wicked is touring, Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Mary Pop, like all your big, big musicals should have neurodivergent people in them and doing that because neurodivergent people exist everywhere and they should always be in all stories, not just ones that specifically deal with neurodivergency. Yeah. It is and I talk about the metaphor of First Nations and Asian people and other culturally and linguistically diverse groups, that we're now seeing that a person of colour can play the lead in a mainstream Australian musical and it not be a thing. Yeah. It just be, we've cast the correct person for this job and that mm-hmm. person had happened to be a person of colour. I think that's great. I think the fact that the current tour of Beauty and the Beast has a person of colour as Belle is amazing. Mm-hmm. I think there is absolute no reason why your beast in Beauty and the Beast can't be a person in a wheelchair. Yep. There is absolutely no reason. It would mean changing how you direct the show, which is why they haven't done it till now, because they'll look at it and go, oh, but the beast has always walked and all the choreography is built for a walking beast, so we can't do it. Change the choreography. Change that moment to be able to cast a wheelchair user or an ambulatory wheelchair user who can walk a bit but also have it into your blocking that sometimes he's walking, sometimes he isn't, and we are able and needing to be able to do both. It's not – it's hard, but it's not insurmountable. And for little disabled kids going to see their first piece of theatre, seeing a beast in a wheelchair will make a – massive difference to them yeah be incredible it will be and like for those little girls of color seeing Belle for the first time i've seen the videos on tiktok i've seen it they tear up they cry it's amazing Mm. and it's beautiful Mm. neurodivergent and disabled people deserve that on the main stage yeah and it is important that my dream and my hope is to one day start a company that can serve both those things and do those things to create new neurodivergent work and also find the neurodivergent in the work that already exists because it is mm-hmm. there and it is not hard to find. Yeah, You just have to be willing to work and think about work differently. Yeah, just be a bit creative. And, and be a bit creative and go, oh, but we've always done it like that. Doesn't mean we have We're to. creative people. We sh- 
doesn't mean we have to. Mm-hmm. We're always pushing against boundaries in our tech, in our that theatre magic. Sometimes theatre magic is just casting well. Mm-hmm. Like putting a person who can sing beautifully on stage, you don't need all the light. I mean, mm-hmm. lighting and sound and a great band is amazing. But a good story well told with good people is going to go a long way more than... And that's what people want to see, I think. That's what we see theatre for. Yes. And I think that's what I want to keep doing with Santa Claus is Autistic and the No Bang Theory is keep growing the potential of the storytelling that we're doing mm-hmm. and not just going, oh, no one disabled approached me so there were no disabled people in my program. Go out and find them. Yeah. They're out there. You can find them. Make it easy for them to find you as well. Make it easy for them to find you. And if you are time and time again not seeing those people come forward, ask yourself why. What is it about your brand that makes it feel like you're not accessible? Yeah. And look at the programming choices that you have made up until that point, and I think you'll find the answer to that question, that if you're doing works that have inherently ableist characters that rely on inherently ableist tropes repeatedly, then you're probably not going to get interest from neurodivergent audiences Mm. and disabled audiences because disabled audiences don't want to go to the theatre and be miserable and sad and feel like they're being attacked. Yeah, made fun of. Or made fun of. Like, we're just not going to go. We're going to stop coming. And that's normal and that every minority group will do that. Mm-hmm. I think so simple but so often forgotten. There are differences in minority groups. But if you're doing it for one minority group, how hard is to think basically we should do this for another? Yeah. And they'll go, oh, it doesn't work quite like that for us. But from a starting place, you're probably going to not be starting from scratch. Yeah. And if you cannot start from scratch and think, oh, we're doing this queer work, so we need queer people involved. We're going to partner with queer charities, blah, 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 blah. And you don't think to do that with disability, then you're not thinking about it widely enough. I guess it's being all-inclusively inclusive, like intersectionally inclusive, because there's lots of crossover between queer people, autistic people, people of colour. It's just being diverse in general. And it's intersectional and it's... I think part of the problem, and I think this is true to certainly in the invisibly disabled, you look at a person of colour and you know fairly quickly they're not white. You can look at me and not know that I am autistic or that I have a disability. And certainly queerness, you don't look at a person and know they're queer instantly. But it's a different thing that I think companies are looking to be seen to be diverse. Mm. So they'll go to people of colour and they'll go to openly queer people that when they show off their season, they can go, look, we're diverse because we have four queer people that they can point to and show on a poster very quickly. You put me on a poster, it looks like you put another straight white man on the poster. Yeah. And you have to justify going, oh, no, we've not just cast another straight white man in this lead role. We're actually being very diverse by casting a neurodivergent person in this lead role even though the part doesn't call for a neurodivergent person, we're just casting them because it's the right thing to do. You have to actively say that in a way Mm. that you don't with people of colour, with insert X minority group here. And I just find that 
problematic. Yeah. And I, I think about this a lot, that a lot of ground has been made in First Nations storytelling in every area through grants and through government-mandated opportunities, that you have to employ a certain number of First Nations storytellers we are going to create special grants for First Nation storytellers. We're going to create special groups, awards, things for First Nations people to get their stories told and to push that forward. And I think that is great and that should continue to happen and that should never stop. Mm-hmm. But if for every four First Nations works, grants, opportunities, castings, whatever that you do, you do one that is neurodivergent or disabled, guaranteed mandated that's going to make a massive difference yeah because currently there are none if you put in even one every year and one consistently every year at every company it can't always be me and it shouldn't always be me i'm not egotistical enough to think it can and should always be me but if you create as there currently is the first nation's prize for playwriting if there is a disabled playwriting award every year that suddenly means you need to find at least one or two disabled led plays in stc mtc qtc the state theater company of south australia belvoir all the different theater companies are suddenly going to start looking Mm. for neurodivergent and disability led plays because they want to win the awards and they want the recognition of programming the play that won that award and then there's opportunities for those playwrights to start it's opportunity and that is growth and that is because people are ego driven people want to win awards that's fine (laughs) i want to win awards and i've won plenty i want to win more positive reinforcement that's positive reinforcement let's make it positive let's make it easy for those companies to program those things because they know if they do that they suddenly stand a chance of winning an award exactly yeah Uh, it's not that hard (laughs) everyone wins Everybody wins. And look, would I like to win those awards? Yeah, I would. Do I think I could win those awards? Yeah, I can. But I also know there are others that are just as good as me, if not better. Also, you want some competition, right? (laughs) I want competition and that's good. And I'm not egotistical about it in such a way that I think if they created this award, I'm automatically going to win and I'm going to win every year and there's no competition and it'll make my career blah, 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 blah. No. Hmm. But I think if we reinforce that positively and maintain it on every level, then suddenly we're going to start seeing a difference. The problem with that strategy is it costs money. Hmm. And until the government and until people start showing an interest and funding it, the solutions are simple, but they cost money to do. Yeah, but it's money that's worth it. It's money that's worth it because in the end it is going to make you more money. Hmm. Like... I am not against capitalism. I understand capitalism is a necessity of the world that we live in and it is a necessity of theatre and film and all art. Is Capitalism is a fundamental part of it. Mm. But you can make such a huge difference to how you tell your stories and how you engage in it if you start thinking, let's invest here and we might lose a bit of money in the short term, but long term we're going to make so much more money. Yeah. And it means taking a risk. Yeah. And uh, so many companies are scared of taking a risk because if it doesn't pay off, they've lost a lot of money. And particularly Mm. small to medium companies, which is where we're going to start seeing the change in the first instance, Mm. 
can't afford to take risks. Yeah. But I feel like if they do it right and if they do it in the way that is sustainable, that actually is inclusive, they're more likely to succeed. And that's the thing. It does take a lot of work in the first instance, but if they do put the work in, it's like anything, they'll get that return. It's a top-down versus a bottom-up approach We mm. and proactive versus reactive. You can't have one without the other. Mm. The mainstream companies need to start doing their bit because right now the small to medium companies are doing all of the work mm. and have, are reaching a point going, we can't do any more yep. until the other side of it starts Picks meeting. Picks up some them. of the slack, yeah. And once they start picking up some of the slack and it starts becoming easier and cheaper and they find the models and they find the money and they find the funding, that will then support and raise. The next generation of companies, the next Chloe Hayden is going to come out of that. The generation of people that grow up watching and loving Chloe Hayden are not that far away. No. Like if you're 16, 15 watching Heartbreak High and seeing yourself on screen for the first time and go I want to go into film I want to go into theater I want to do that they've maybe got two years of school left and then they're at university and university is a whole other kettle of unaccessible bullshit yeah that is a conversation that I that's another podcast episode for another time (laughs) that is another podcast episode for another time but in how we train artists in order to get them the recognition on a university level but that's not that far away Mm. We need to start doing it now Mm. because it will take 25 years to make seismic generational change. That's fine. And that is normal. The tragedy of change is that it takes time. Yeah. But until we start, we can't finish. Exactly. And I think if I was leaving it on that is just start making accessible theatre and film and accessible change because you're going to see results. And I'm doing my bit with Santa Claus is Autistic and the No Bang Theory, but I can't do it by myself. I need your listeners to start coming to my play, you know. I can't do it without audiences. I can't do it without industry support. It takes a village to make change. Yes. And we just have to start. Yes, and work together. Totally. And work together. Tell us the dates and times for Santa Claus is Autistic. So you've got dates in Brisbane at the moment? Yes, I have dates in, we have one in Redlands on the, on Thursday night, which I think is the 23rd, but you probably won't get that up before then. Hopefully you've had a wonderful opening night by this time. Yes. Then our next dates are December 7th, December 15th. And December 23rd at the Pip Theatre in Brisbane, capital P, small i, capital P Theatre. You'll find it. It's That's in Milton, is that right? That is in Milton, yes. In the Milton. Se- right in the centre of Brisbane. It's a beautiful little venue. It's intimate, seats about 100 and so people. It's going to be amazing. We're employing, including me and some other people on the team, 13 autistic neurodivergent people and an additional four neurotypicals so that is one of the first shows that i can think of that has a majority neurodivergent team on it that's incredible and i think that is spectacular and yeah i'm really excited and it's a great show it'll you'll laugh until you cry i think it's beautiful it is 
got all the things that the no bang theory has if you have already seen the no bang theory but it is bigger and more community focused and i think that's great fantastic i'll make sure that the links are in the episode notes so you can book tickets do you have an idea of when you might be bringing it to melbourne or other parts uh, at this stage no i don't it hopefully it will be successful my plan is if not 2024 2025 mm-hmm. that my goal for next year is i'm having conversations with a bigger bolder i don't want to say names in here in brisbane and then mm-hmm. the hope is that will then lead to either late christmas period 2024 or 2025 to start thinking about touring awesome is the hope sounds like a good plan and is there any chance of seeing uh, no bang theory again have you got any plans to tour it i will keep doing the no bang theory as long as people let me keep doing the no bang theory we have a date in toowoomba in february um and i'm trying desperately with all my might to get no bang theory to sydney but that is proving difficult at the moment and then who knows what the future holds. I like touring the show. I think it's a great show. And the more kind of interest and conversations that can happen, the more easily touring can happen. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to be a part of this podcast. If you like the sound of me, I am at a twist of Oliver HP on Instagram and threads and a twist of Oliver on the ghost of Twitter. Um, <laughs> I still haven't deleted that app. neither have i who knows (laughs) it's there send me a message i try to respond as best i can and just tell me what you're about you know if you're neurodivergent and want to talk about this stuff i'm always happy to talk about this stuff i love talking about this stuff i mean we're an hour and something into this podcast and i'm still talking about this (laughs) stuff and i could probably talk about it for another hour and something and i would be happy to um if i didn't have to go to bed at some point (laughs) I'm always here for a chat and I want to keep this conversation going because I think that's how we make sizable change is by talking about it. Yeah. If you have seen No Bang Theory or you're interested and you're excited, tell everybody, not just neurodivergent friends, but neurotypical friends too, because I think everyone should see your awesome work and Santa Claus is autistic. Um, I have one last question for you, which I've been thinking about since I saw no bag theory are all the jackets yours and did you buy them for the show or did you just already have them on your in your closet no they're all mine and no i did not buy any of them specifically for the show i just have them in my wardrobe and i slowly have collected them over a number of years there's a tailor that i love up here that does them for me he's amazing and yeah, my jackets are kind of my brand and I love them all dearly. I love them too. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love colourful, glittery, bright clothes. So I was obsessed with your jackets. Will we see more jackets in Santa Claus is Autistic? There are a couple of new jackets. Uh, Santa Claus is Autistic is we have a kind of red and black Christmas thing going on for all our costuming. So they're all red and black is the vibe (laughs) for Santa Claus is Autistic. But there are a couple of jackets in Santa Claus is Autistic. I can promise you that. 
I'm very excited to see them. Thank you so much, Oliver. This was such an awesome chat. And just like you said, I could talk about this for so much longer. And it's so nice to get more perspective on theatre and representation in theatre because it's something we've really only dabbled in on this podcast. So, um, yeah, it's been a really fascinating and awesome chat. I'm so excited to see what you do next. Thank you for having me on. I love talking about it. And as soon as I saw I was trying to find people to invite to Melbourne who seemed to have an interest and vibe that I wanted to get into the room and as soon as I saw the podcast Psycho Cinematic I'm like yeah no I need to get that person (laughs) along whoever runs that podcast because that seems just the right vibe for what I'm after. Awesome well I'm glad you appreciate the podcast I'm really glad you've come on the podcast too so really happy to have you here for the same reason. Thank you. This podcast is not designed to be therapeutic, prescriptive, or constitute a formal diagnosis for any listener. For a longer version of this disclaimer, please check the episode notes on your podcast app.